Humans today possess powers that people throughout most of history ascribed only to gods. We can fly through the air at hundreds of miles an hour. We can peer into boardrooms or bedrooms on the other side of the world. We can be present, virtually at least, in two or even ten places at once. These are truly God-like powers. Yet we were not made to be gods. Our physical bodies and minds are still very human. And that means that despite our technology and capacities, we remain finite, limited, dependent. Now, when you pair these two realities, these godlike capabilities and human finiteness, it's like putting a jet engine into a Chevy. Your new wonder vehicle may run amazingly fast for a while, but eventually the tires will start to wear thin. The axles will start to smoke and burn. And no matter how great that jet engine was at the start, the whole vehicle soon will be useless. Now seeing that, you could curse the Chevy for its inadequacy, or you could try to remember what that car was made for in the first place. You can reevaluate its strengths and its limits and start to ask of it only what it was meant to be. And when you do that, you might just rediscover that when used as intended, a Chevy can be a marvelous thing. The same is true of us. With a clear-eyed view of what we were made for, of our strengths and limits, a human can be a marvelous thing. Who wants to feel small? At first thought, no one. But as our guest today helps us see, it's precisely in holding a deep sense of our finiteness, our dependence and vulnerability, our very smallness, that we can live light and free. Welcome to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Together, we'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here is your host, Jed Medifit. Well, I am here with Dr. Kelly Capic. Kelly, welcome to Justice and the Inner Life. That's great to be with you, Jed. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Kelly, you are a husband and a father mm. and a friend. You're a writer, mm. speaker, and also I know a a beloved professor. I, I, I interact, it just seems like I cross paths with your students in all of the, the most random places. And every single time the response is something to the effect of, oh, Dr. Kaptik, I loved him. I loved his class. Oh, that's kind. It, 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 is, it is the truth. And uh, mm. yeah, yeah. So very grateful to get to draw from you here. Well, let, let's plunge into our kind of the, the center point of, of our conversation mm. today. That is, you have a new book. It's coming out this week officially. Uh, and I had a chance to read kind of an advanced copy, mm. valued it immensely. I've told you that already. Um, but it is titled, You're Only Human. And the subtitle is, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. So, so it's exploring the, the finiteness, the limitedness mm. of humans. And, and you're advancing the thesis that that very limitedness, the smallness of who we are. First of all, we need to understand it. But second of all, that is wonderful news. Uh, so, so Kelly, first, just what got you thinking in this direction at all? What, why, why is this, this theme something that's been on your mind and heart? The shortest answer to that is because so often I, like many of the people probably listening to this, when I put my head on the pillow, I just felt like, ah, <laughs> that day I'm, I feel exhausted and I just feel like, a low level sense of guilt. I should have done more. I should have accomplished more. I can't believe where I'm at. And, you know, I've been thinking about this theme for 20 years and, and, and longer. And one of the reasons is because it's a, it's a challenge for, for me and others. And, um, how, what does it mean to be faithful in light of the reality of our limits? And I, I, so I'm, I'm, the short answer is I'm interested in this topic personally. But then as I began to speak about it and write about it in little ways, students really lit up. Hmm. And when I started looking at their lives and how exhausted they are and the kind of expectations we have, but then I realized this is all of us. It's not just students. And we really, we, and, and Christians have baptized us. We think 
productivity is the most important thing. Efficiency is the most important thing. And I have, you know, at risk of ticking people off, I now deeply question those two things. (laughs) I'm not totally against efficiency. I'm not, I'm all about productivity, but I have some serious questions about them as our highest values, because I've, I really don't believe they're God's highest values. Mm, you know, I, I resonate with that deeply. I, I feel like the, the drive to maximize is very large in my heart. And some of that mm. is wiring. Pro- probably I'm, mm-hmm. I think that's one of my five strength finders, maximizer, right? Mm. But I think that there is something underlying that in at least contemporary Christian culture that essentially takes the world's value of productivity, which is a very, uh, Western, pr- pr- uniquely American value, the drive towards productivity, yeah. and then baptizes it and describes it as maximizing things for the Lord, and, and often for very good ends, whether it's you know in, in service programs, developing a nonprofit, growing a church size, those things. But it is, it is just a slightly morphed form of the world's worship of productivity yeah. we put in Christian language and then are just as driven as our neighbor is in, in their, their career. That's absolutely true. And so we, I mean, even the way we interpret certain texts like redeeming the time, which gets, we don't even realize how we've kind of pulled this through. You know, I'm a capitalist. I'm an American. I'm Western. But the reality is, the fact that we are capitalist Westerns, contemporary modern Americans, that deeply shapes how we even understand a text like that, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, things like rest feel frivolous. Things like sleep, the way we talk about sleep, someone who has to sleep a lot, they it's almost like they have to apologize for it. We, we glorify, including in Christian circles, people who don't sleep very much, right? I only need this much... That, that's not biblical, right? In these kind of ways. So, so thinking about efficiency and productivity are not bad, but the problem is when they become our highest values, they rule out love. It's very hard to love when you're always thinking about efficiency because mm-hmm. love is incredibly inefficient, right? Yes. And that's what yes. drives new parents crazy when they have a newborn because it's not efficient, right? <laughs> None of it works according to schedule. So yeah, I, I think we should be productive and efficient in a mindful way and start to explore what, what does our faith have to say about that? And, you know, you wouldn't sell, say this, Kelly, but I'll, I'll say it for the benefit of the audience that Dr. Kelly Kapik here is, is very product productive. I mean, if you look at his resume <laughs> and CV, you know, the books you've written, the conferences you've spoken at, the, the, the work you've done, you've churned out a lot. And so this is not someone, you know, who sits on a lotus flower, uh, right. you know, uh, in, you, you are, productive. And yet you're looking at some of that and saying, at least some of that may not have been fully aligned with God's best. Right toward the front of the book, you you make this statement, denying our finitude cripples us mm. in ways we don't realize. How is that true? Let's be real practical, given some of the things we're talking about. When we are driven by this sense that we should always be doing more and 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 performing better, it actually, in a very subtle way, sometimes it's not so subtle for some of us, we view everybody as competition. And so you should always be doing more, know more, do more. And you're, in a sense, trying to win constantly because uh, you're trying to overcome these things. If you embrace your finitude, if you say, I'm a creature in this body, in this time and space, these limits then rather than seeing Jed as a competition or someone, you know, I need to overcome, I can delight in your gifts. I can say, look at what he brings that I don't bring. And that doesn't make me feel guilty. It makes me, it liberates me to enjoy what God has given you and to benefit, right? Um, and so I, I think about how we raise children. Do we, and I see this even whether it's siblings or friends, do we raise our children so that when they see other kids, they actually compliment those kids rather than try, always trying to win? I think it's massive and it's incredibly rare. So that's just a, a, a simple example of when we deny our finitude, we deny how much we need one another. In the early 20th century, there was a theologian many in your audience would know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. And Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a book in, on creation and fall But one of the great things he understood is that God made human creatures from the beginning to be dependent. And in our culture, we think dependence is a bad word, 
But the reality is, even before there was sin and fall, God made us as human creatures to depend upon him, mm-hmm. to depend upon other humans, and to depend upon the earth. Interdependence and dependence is just part of being a creature. But we, including the church, have pretty profoundly rejected that. And now we think dependence on others is a sign of weakness. Now, I, I understand there, there can be dysfunctional dependence and that kind of thing. Sure. But, but if you think that you have to be an independent, autonomous being and dependence is weakness, it makes love almost impossible. Both giving and receiving it. Giving and receiving. And so that is a long way of saying denying our finitude. We don't use that language, but when we undervalue it or reject it, it really does cripple us. It cripples our ability to love. It cripples our ability to delight in others. Um, just as some some basic examples. What do you see as at the root of, of our problem here? You know, what what is it that causes us to deny our finitude, to overreach, overwork, to overschedule. So if I ask anyone, do you think you're God? We all know the right answer, right? Of course, you know, I'm not God. That's ridiculous. But it is amazing. Like when I talk about when I put my head on the pillow at night and feel guilty about my day, part of the reason I feel guilty about my day without really realizing it is I have unrealistic expectations about how much I as a finite creature should be able to do. And the reality is only God is infinite. God can do all things. I never was meant to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think at the very basic level, the root of the problem is we forget the creator-creature distinction. God is a creator, and we are never less than creatures. And we're never more than creatures. And that sounds bad until you realize God made creatures, and he likes the fact that we're creatures. That doesn't embarrass him. The fact that we're creatures isn't sinful. And, and so the creator-creature distinction, I think, is at the root of the problem. Mm. When we forget or ignore it. Yeah. Or downplay yeah. it. And it seems like since the, the very first temptation, we have been chasing, chafing against that yeah. boundedness, the limitations, right? The, yes. The original temptation was you shall be as gods. Yeah. And and that that reaching for capacities beyond the, the the limits within which God intends for us to thrive and delight and take joy, we always from the very start have wanted to reach beyond those. So later in the book, you you get very practical and tangible, and we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. But you you also argue that in order to live into this this vision that you're inviting us into of of seeing our limitedness, our creatureliness as as not just uh, bounds and disappointing things, but but actually a mm. wonderful place to dwell. You say that that must be rooted in a particular theological vision and, and in mm. two aspects of, of theology in particular, the creation and the incarnation. Mm. So let's let's start in the in the beginning here, a very good place to start, right? Uh, what what does having a deep sense of the goodness of God's original creation? Why, why does that matter so much here? There's all kinds of things to say about it besides when and how God did it. And the fact is that he made us creatures. And it's there, what there's no debate about in Genesis 1 is it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And we really struggle to believe it's good. Is it do we need to overcome our humanity or, you know, it, and think of it very practically for Christians, if you don't have a good view of creation, it means sanctification or spirituality is often an attempt to get beyond your body. It's an mm-hmm. attempt to get beyond the material world. It's it's even an attempt to get beyond kind of the messiness of this life and just kind of end up in a mystical, you know, I'm not totally against mystical things, but it it can be a loss of this world rather than Sanctification is God renewing his world in and through us. And so we don't have to belittle our bodies. We don't have to belittle the complications of relationships. We can invest in them. So that is a call to, to see the physical world, including our physicalness, our bodies, in, and their limitedness. Both, mm-hmm. both, you know, Because there's such marvelous gifts and strengths and capacities in the human body. And yet it is bounded and finite sure. and limited and needs to sleep and needs to eat and needs to do all these things. There's a dependency upon others, upon God. Seeing all of that, 
as something that actually predated the fall. It's not mm -hmm. sin that exactly. made us limited creatures. It is actually God's in original good intent. And he, over all of that, he said, this is very good. Yeah. So I'm sorry. I know you're going to ask something else, but so there's a great example of how, when we don't understand that we end up distorting things like humility so that humility for Christians, we often think we know we're supposed to be humble, but when you ask why, or when you listen to how people encourage us to become more humble, it tends to be because we're sinners. Well, I think the fact that we're sinners should encourage us to be humble, you know, recognizing that. But the fact is, even if there were no sin and no fall, we are made to be humble because humble just mm -hmm. means we recognize we're dependent on God, dependent on others, dependent upon the earth. That's just humility. Mm -hmm. That's not. And so if you don't get that, then the way you think you have to foster humility is by thinking worse and worse about yourself, which ironically becomes self-obsessed mm -hmm. rather than a healthy view of creation says, I can foster humility by delighting in other people, by recognizing and leaning into my dependence upon God, by having a healthy view of my relationship to the earth. All of those things are healthy, life-giving ways to cultivate humility. It's not just navel gazing, thinking I'm worse, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, right? Yes. And if you don't have a view of creation that's robust, you only end up in self-loathing. And that, I think, is a real problem. Mm. Okay, so that's creation. The other theological mooring that you mm. really ground this book in is in the incarnation. Yeah. And uh, it, it strikes me that this is in sharp contrast to some of the, the Greek thought that mm. essentially said the physical body is bad, right? And so yeah. you see, see that showing up in Gnosticism and Docetism, mm -hmm. where they're rejecting physical things and saying the only good and pure and beautiful thing is that which has transcended physical bodies and the physical world. And yet mm. the incarnation completely rejects that. Right. Unpack why this matters for this conversation. In the ancient church, uh, there was an early church father named Tertullian, for example, who's who's fighting against the very misrepresentations that, that you mentioned there. And it's fascinating. He spends a lot of time talking about the birth of Jesus. And the reason that matters is because you have others who are talking about spirituality and, and God, and it all sounds really good, but they're embarrassed that God, like, it doesn't make any sense to them that God would become a human, right? How, how, how could that be? So it can't actually be. And so what Tertullian does is he focuses on just, he talks about afterbirth and you're like, that isn't that kind of not very pious. I don't understand. What he, but he's trying to, he's actually trying to shock the Gnostics and these others to say, what you think is gross, God thinks is good. And, uh, and the greatest sign of that is not just by reading Genesis 1 and 2. It's that the eternal Son of God enters in and becomes human, and that doesn't make him a sinner. Becoming a human creature, becoming incarnate in the flesh, does not make him sinful, right? Um, he is like us in all ways, yet without sin. And, and so the fact, as Tertullian says, the fact that God is not embarrassed to enter in and become one with us means that we should not be embarrassed of our humanity. And, and the last thing to kind of say on that is that it's fascinating to me that Tertullian and others, what they emphasize is both the virgin birth and the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, because both of those are really about the importance of his physicality. And, and Tertullian is an example where we always think, oh, virgin birth, that must matter because it shows that Jesus is truly God. Well, you can get that. But it, it was interesting in my research how often they use the virgin birth to emphasize the fact that he's actually truly human. He is the son of Mary. And they emphasize the human side of that, where we only look at the divine side. Obviously, we just don't want to choose between those. But it's fascinating to me to think about just how important the humanity of Jesus is for better understanding our humanity. So we want to ground our sense of, of our limitedness and the beauty and goodness of that limitedness, mm. both in the fact that this is God's original intent before the fall mm -hmm. of creation. And then it is uh, re-articulated in the incarnation, reaffirmed mm. that 
that that God himself chooses to enter into this boundedness right. and limitedness. You describe our fixation with productivity, as we talked about earlier, as really linchpin here. You know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, as I said, I, I, I resonate with that because I just feel like even in the realm of, of, you know, what's considered ministry, I so often mm. value the success of my day, the value of my day, the value of my year based on things that, that I would consider and hopefully others would consider productive, right? Right. And there, there is something biblical in that, right? I mean, sure. the parable of the talents, right? You right. Get, you're given five, you produce five right. more. Uh, but I wonder if the metaphor of productivity, which, which in biblical terms is, is almost always an organic metaphor. Something is growing up out of us Mm. is very different than the factory metaphor of productivity, which is the same word, Mm. but a very different experience for those involved Mm. in the process. Do you, do you have any sense of, of a different way of viewing productivity that would redeem that, that concept? Being productive is part of being a human creature, right? It's part of, uh, in the, in the creation, it was be fruitful and multiply. That is about productivity in all kinds of ways, actually. Um, God delights in us working. So it, it is fascinating to me how often with this book, people's first question is, well, that sounds good, but isn't everyone just going to be lazy? I understand that, but I don't think at least a lot of people who are drawn to the book, that's the temptation. Overwork and sloth are often related. One of the reasons people go on six-hour Netflix binges or whatever is because they're so exhausted. And and they're just looking for an, a way to escape. And so they'll escape and then feel guilty about it. So um, how, how do we think of productivity in a healthy way? My short answer would be through healthy communities. Because mm-hmm. we need other people in our lives often that are trustworthy to help us go, you know what? You probably need to put a little bit more energy into this or, you know, this need. But those people that love us also say, you know what? You you know, one of the greatest gifts I have is my wife says, no, you've done enough. You're mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Be done. Different personalities ha- handle this in different ways. But for me, simply telling myself I've done enough, never it never seems believable. Mm. Yeah. But if I have another human that I trust, look me in the eyes and say, Kelly, I, I hear you. You need to be done. Or, you know, you, you need to say no to this invitation. You need to, you know, not do take this on. Um because when we don't do that, things like bitterness and anger take root. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways to, to get a healthier view of productivity, I think, is to have a much more communal view rather than individual. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, and we can talk about this later, in terms of the church as an example, It what God and Jesus expects of the church is more than any of us can do. And the way to solve that is not because is not by me doing it all, nor is a way to solve it by pretending that God doesn't have all these important things for us to do. The way to solve it is to recognize it takes the whole community, not just an individual, to faithfully follow what God is asking. Well, and here we're kind of t- rounding the corner from describing the problem to, to heading into, okay, what 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 is restorative? What is healing? How do we have a healthy sense of these things? And I, and I felt one of the best things in the book among many was your vision for how seeing the church as the full body of Christ, as, as core to the solution, that if we look at all the needs of the world and the brokenness of the world, we will always be overwhelmed, particularly those of us who care and particularly those of us who take seriously the passages in the Bible that call God's people to defend the fatherless, care for the orphan, feed the hungry, right? We see all of that need and it is utterly crushing. Mm -hmm. And yet you urge us to, as soon as we see that need, we also look to the church as the full body Mm. of Christ and say, each of us does have a role in that, but no one Mm -hmm. of us can carry that alone. Tell us more about that. It is the, you know, sometimes people use this phrase, the messianic complex. And we know we're not Jesus, but sometimes we do act as if we are, right? And so one of those examples is um, Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats. And the sheep go to heaven and the goats go to hell. It's this very sobering text. And if you actually just look at the text and don't grab a bunch of other verses, the thing that distinguishes the sheep and the goat is 
those who care for the the prisoners, the marginalized, you know, uh, the poor. And as Jesus says, what you've done unto these, you've done unto me. And I had a friend who who is dear to me, and he called me from California, and, and a very tender conscience. He'd gone to seminary. He, he studied all this, but he was just struggling with the assurance of his salvation because he's like, I, I can't do all of that, right? And so the temptation is to go, well, Jesus didn't really mean it. You, you actually don't need to care about prisoners. You don't need to care about the orphan or the widow. I do think he meant it, right? And so... Without unpacking the whole thing, the short answer is I, I actually think Jesus means it and we need to do it, but not as individuals. And so we need to care for the orphan, the widow, uh, the marginalized, the, those who are hungry, the materially poor. Or, or you can add children's ministry. You can keep going with all these things that God cares about. And the short answer is we are the body of Christ and each of us are just part of that body. Um. But what that means is I care for orphans because I, by the spirit, am connected to you, Jed. And I can delight in that. I, you know, um, th- there is, without getting into debate here, there's, there's this ancient church saying that even Protestants, John Owen and others would talk about that there's no salvation outside of the church. Well, that, that can be a big debate, but taken in this context, part of it is, Listen, it takes the whole church to be the one body of Christ. Mm-hmm. You need Absolutely. to be part of the church to faithfully do what God wants to do in his world. And then you benefit from what God is doing in his world without you personally needing to do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And we're in an age that really, for understandable reasons, is very nervous about institutions. But I would love us to see that that actually the institutions like the church for all of its problems is vital to our lives, mm, right? Yes, and and then and then we can even have space for nonprofits and other things, rather than viewing them as threats. The the institutional church doesn't have to do all these things, but God's people do in all these ways, and so we could support these things in healthy ways where there's expertise and knowledge and experience. And yeah, yeah. that's so well said. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Kelly, one of the things I love about being part of the CAFO community is we we feel and we see the ways in which that is expressed all over the world, yeah. you know, particularly in relation to vulnerable children and families. And so, you know, while, yes, I work hard, I do the best that I can, but I'm also aware that there are, you know, are infinite needs that I could never, never touch. Yeah. But but I'm at least partially aware. I know Belai in Ethiopia right now, mm. right? As you and I are talking, he is serving orphans in Ethiopia. And I know that Aisha in Guatemala, she's trying to rally mm. the church there. And Alex in yeah. India, he's doing that. And there are people in every county in the United States who are trying to gather churches and engage in foster care and are living that out. And in a sense, as you, you said, in a, in a very beautifully rich spiritual sense, we have a share in that. We are participating yeah. in that because we are indeed one body. It, for me, it was it, it was so liberating to kind of, and I know, again, people are going to be worried this will be an excuse not to do something. Um, but I, I think when you see it, it's not. It, it, but it's so encouraging for me to think, you know what? I am helping people recover from sex trafficking. And I am helping feed people and and I'm helping evangelize in Nepal and the list goes on and on because I'm just part of the church. And so, but the thing is that rightly understood what that should mean is not, therefore I don't need to do anything. What it should mean is, so what can I do to bring to the mm-hmm. community? What, yeah. how can I, in my particularity, in my particular body with my limits and my financial restraint, whatever it is, what is God calling me to? Yeah. And then it's beautiful. And I, I don't think that's going to cause anyone to sit on the couch because I, I mean, even just a basic understanding of human psychology, what paralyzes people is not seeing good things in motion. Actually, when you see good things in motion, you want yes. to be a part of it, right? What paralyzes exactly. people saying that need is so big and vast, I could never make exactly. a dent. So I might as yeah. well just play video games. Exactly. Yes. And to, to realize we're part of this drama is a beautiful thing, mm. right? Um, and I think once we see the creator creature distinction and that God is committed to his world and is working in and through his church, um, and that grace means we don't have to, grace means we are invited to participate in good and meaningful work, right? And, and that is what God is doing with his children. And, and the reality is he does call us to these things, 
He calls us to good work. Um, and when we don't do good work, it hurts us and it hurts others. Mm. It's not about earning his favor. It's about living out of his favor and in light of his favor. Well, Kelly, as, as folks are grappling with these things, and I, and I, I can very much imagine that others, as I, as, as they ponder them, they say, yes, I, I actually want to be smaller. I want mm. to feel my smallness and the freedom of that, which frees me not to feel like, you know, to falsely imagine the, the weight of the world is on my shoulders and that I, mm. that I can touch everything. And I want to be freed to feel my smallness before God and delight in that. And, and later in the book, you, you lay out four particular ways that for, for mm. you have been meaningful to, to receive the gift of that smallness. Mm. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to visit each of those four briefly. Of course, we can't go fully into that. For that, people right, will have sure. to, have to get the book, right? But, yeah. but, uh, so for the first is embrace rhythms and seasons of life. So mm. briefly, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So what it means is my guess is there's a lot of people listening to this or just like me. When I make my list of to do's, on Monday, what my list is, is not a list of to do for Monday. It's, it would take a whole week to do, but I've made it just for Monday so that I've now <laughs> made yes. it. So yes. at the end of the day, I'm going to feel guilty because guaranteed frustration, yes. guaranteed frustration. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, actually there's this, um, uh, woman, Jocelyn Glee, and she, I don't think is a, is a Christian, but she has this great phrase called productivity shame. And that's basically the idea. So learning the rhythms of life means I have to realize a day is a day. It's not a week. It's not a month, not a year learning those kind of things, but also, and so being more realistic about what a day looks like and creating patterns for space within that day. So that when someone wants to talk, it's not a crisis. You can, you can be present. Um, but also just being comfortable with. When you have newborns, that is a season of life where you can be truly godly and spiritual. But what that looks like is not the same as if you have children that are 30 and 40 years old and you're in retirement, right? We There are different seasons of life, and that's okay. God, one of the challenges is when people like me write about spirituality, we tend to say, my particular life right now should be the model mm. and that hurts us. Mm -hmm. So, so it is fine to be godly as a teenager with your own teenage body and angst and particularity and in your retirement, whatever it is. So different rhythms of life, different seasons call for an awareness of that. Mm. That's very good. Yes. Very good. Uh, okay. So second is recognize our vulnerability. And, and I know there you're saying just to, to, to do things that cultivate this awareness that, hey, we're not the strutting, all competent, uh, individual that we sometimes imagine ourselves to mm. be. But instead, we, we can actually, uh, in, in some sense, recognize and delight in the fact that we are vulnerable beings. How do we actually cultivate that? I mean, beyond just kind of an intellectual conversation, yes, I'm vulnerable. Yes, I'm limited. How do we cultivate that? Yeah, I mean, some of it is are, are, are things like um, confession. Um, I, I think part of the reason, I mean, vulnerability now is this huge thing because of people like Brene Brown, right? And she, her, you know, her video on, on vulnerability, the power of vulnerability, I think it's been, you know, 60 million views because it resonates. But as a Christian, we should know you don't become vulnerable. Even the way we use the language, the reality is just being a creature means you're vulnerable, right? You are vulnerable. Yeah. We just are vulnerable. We need food. We need shelter. We need relationship. We need love. Um, and so cultivating an awareness of that is quite important. And it, and it relates to the next ones that when I talk about lament and gratitude, maybe if I can combine those, that mm -hmm. will be helpful. Mm -hmm. Because as a, as a practice, lament is a is looking at things and going, this isn't the way it should be. But gratitude is this biblical practice that we do because it it is a way of practicing a recognition of God's presence and His gift. Um, and the the practice of gratitude to be grateful means you're dependent upon others. You're appreciating what others are bringing or what God is bringing. Um, but the, the vulnerability is, I think, this awareness that then 
creates an environment for us to practice healthy lament and healthy gratitude. Um, and, and it's interesting in positive psychology and there's some legitimate concerns there, but there's, this is a field that said psychology was great about analyzing what's wrong with us, but not great about saying positive things. And so a, a group of them for the last 30 years have been looking for positive traits, um, or characteristics. And, and one, um, is gratitude that's been studied extensively. Robert Emmons, who happens to be a Christian at UC Davis, and it shouldn't surprise us, people who, who do a gratitude journal and just every day write down like five things they're thankful for, a crunchy apple, a nice conversation, someone was nice to you at a restaurant, whatever it is. If you do that for a month, your heart, you, you, you sleep better. There's all of these empirical things, which as a theologian makes me a little nervous. But it shouldn't surprise us. It's actually a healthy way of that God has made us. So yes, anyways, practicing gratitude is, is very important. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I know when I express gratitude, the even if I'm not thinking this, I may be just naming, you know, I just am grateful for this beautiful summer day. Right. Underlying that is the sense that gift is has come in, right? And it was yeah. not something I didn't earn that day, I didn't create that day. It yep. was a gift. And and so there is a creatureliness, a dependence, a receptivity um, that that comes with every single statement of gratitude. And so that, that makes a, a great deal of sense that just expressing gratitude cultivates this sense that I am finite, I am bounded, I am vulnerable, all of those things. With sports, you get someone and you'll get someone who will be interviewed and they'll just talk about what a great athlete they are and how amazing they are. And some people are like, oh, that's great, but it kind of drives a lot of people crazy. But then you get another athlete who's like, thanks to the line for blocking for me and the quarterback for doing this and this person, that person tends to get a lot more respect. And the reality is both players benefited from all the rest of the team, mm -hmm. but only one is acknowledging what is real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And part of what we're trying to do is I, as you said, whether or not we name it, there's every, it's so much as gift. Um, so we're not trying to make something that's not real. We're just trying to acknowledge what is the truth about the way God set up the world and our dependence on him. Yes. And and Christ himself, grace, the word for grace in Greek is the same as gift. Christ is the gift, God's great gift, um, which is his grace. It is a gift meant to be received and enjoyed and appreciated. Yeah, gift. Love it. Well, f the fourth one. So we've got three thus far. Embrace rhythms and seasons of life. Recognize our vulnerability. Express both lament and gratitude. Mm. Uh, and then the fourth is just an encouragement to rest, to, mm. to, to honor. You say honor, sleep, and Sabbath. And you make an, an interesting observation here. You say sleep is an act of faith. Mm. And I believe that with all my heart. T tell us what yeah. you meant there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and again... You know, I, I write this because I struggle with this, right? But uh, probably a, a way to understand this is when you're, when a soldier is out in war, they can't sleep unless they have someone else with them watching their back, right? One of the reasons we often struggle to sleep is because we feel the weight of the world is on our shoulders and we need to keep all the balls in the air. And Sleep is theologically important. And part of what's remarkable biblically is that God never sleeps. And that matters because the fact that God never sleeps is the basis for why you and I can, right? Mm. And so it is an act of faith saying, oh, God has my back. God, God, the world does not need me every moment of the day. And I need to, in faith, lay down my agency and sleep. And trust the creator and redeemer with what he's doing. So, yeah, I think rest, um, I, I, it was really fun to research and write the section on sleep. Uh, that was very helpful to me uh, and practical. And the same with rest. I mean, it, it's funny, depending on your circles, in some theological circles, when you say, you know, Sunday is a day of rest, people start to debate and it's about legalism and stuff. But I find these days, if I tell Christians, do you know that God made you to to rest one in seven days. That sounds like the most crazy, unbelievable thing. Like no way. Right. Think I work with college students. 
they feel guilty if they're not studying on Sunday. And, and it's, it's Christians that have made them feel guilty. That's how skewed we've become. And that, no, 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 it's okay to rest, to worship, to go for a walk, to play games, to take a nap, to do these things, to rest. That's how we've been made. And the reason why you and I are physically dying is we never rest <laughs> any night or once a week. Yes, yes. And as, as, as you alluded to in regard to the gratitude, when we align ourselves with how God intended us to live, mm. when we receive the gift of sleep, when we receive the gift of Sabbath, when we choose to be grateful and to be uh, thankful in all circumstances, when we choose to do those things, humans thrive. Because yes. we're designed to be that way. And when we receive the gift of sleep, we, we thrive. And when we don't, yeah. we, we wither. Um, yeah. I just, just recently watched a, a Google talk, which, which was, uh, Matthew Walker. Um, I believe he's a professor at, uh, at, at UC Berkeley and just was going through the science on the, the consequences of sleeping less than we need to. And then the right. benefits of sleeping, you know, as exactly. much as the human body was designed to sleep. And, and yet the scripture says, he grants sleep. God grants sleep to those he loves, meaning that's his good intent for his children is that they get an adequate amount of sleep at night. Yeah. And, and that's what I totally agree. And part of what drove this book is that's just an example. When you look at it, if we're honest as Christians, we often feel guilty when we need to sleep, like we're not doing enough mm -hmm. and we feel guilty resting. Uh, like that is an unspiritual thing. And that is a, that is a, I'm not interested in legalism. <laughs> Nothing I'm talking about is legal. I just want, I want us to have sleep and rest because that's the only way to love. I mean, it just becomes very important. Jesus himself needs to retreat. Uh, part of what's going on is he needs the capacity, having been with the father, um, to be able to love well. And I mean, there are times Jesus goes without sleep, choosing disciples. There, there are these times and there are times in our lives when we need to go without sleep. I'm not saying that, but, um, as a pattern of life, how you and I think and experience sleep or rest is probably a great indicator of these hidden views of what do we actually think God expects of us? Mm -hmm. How might we have some unhealthy views of God? and of what it means to be human. And that ties back to our, what we started with, which is that yeah. ultimately this will flow from our view of God and of his creation. Yep. That if, if our need for sleep is simply a reflection of sin or the fall or our own laziness, right. and we're sleeping, you know, eight hours a day because we're lazy or we, we're not dedicated enough to the Lord, right. then we're always going to be dealing with shame and guilt and frustration. Yes. But if we see that this is actually, even before the fall, God intended this for us, and even in our broken world, he desires to give sleep and Sabbath and other forms of rest as a good gift to his children to feed mm -hmm. us, to sustain us, to bring us life. And then we take those gifts and also turn and spill out good gifts to others. If that's his intent, yeah. we can receive this with a light heart, without guilt, just with pure joy. Yeah. And, and, and to tie it, thank you for saying all that, because even to tie it with vulnerability, um, as you as you may know, psychologists especially Christian psychologists have really emphasized how do you deal with the problem of shame? And the short answer is through vulnerability and relationships, shame loses unhealthy. Shame loses its power when it is exposed to the light. Right. Um, and so recognizing some of these things and bringing light to them is super healthy and exposing these hidden beliefs we have about God expectations of ourselves um, allows us to see afresh the goodness of God, the way he made us, his grace, um, but just a healthier view. It's a, it's a way of dealing with shame is coming to deal, coming to terms with just the reality of what it means to be a human creature. And you don't need to feel shame for that. Well, Kelly, I, I know you write this book in a very personal way. This is coming out mm. of your own struggles with desiring mm. to be very fruitful and productive, both in probably very good ways and maybe some ways that are distorted by our culture. Sure. Um, and, you know, if you could go back to, and talk with yourself coming out of, of grad mm. school or before yeah. grad school, right? And, and give counsel on how to be productive and seek to be productive for things of eternal value and yet to live with a sense of that limitedness. What, what encouragement would you give to, to young Kelly? 
<laughs> you know, it's funny because I still have to give myself all of these talks now. So it's not just young <laughs> Kelly. Um, I, I do think, as I mentioned earlier, learning to share with people you trust these struggles so they can speak into them is, is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, really studying the father's love and his delight in us. I mean, there's a chapter in the book on, you know, does God love us? Does God love me? And, and part of what has been related to this conversation is, um, what does God think of me? Not generic humanity, but Kelly Capic, right? And it, uh, part of what has been very helpful for me is just trying to think through and work through theologically God's view of me as a creature and what his expectations are and some of the unhealthy assumptions. So the short thing I would say to young Kelly is keep studying God's grace and his love um, and, and trust that he doesn't want you to be miserable. He wants you to love him and to love your neighbor. And that has a certain rhythm and pace to it. And so you can do good work, but you just do it over time. Well, well, Kelly, near the end of the book, you describe what happens when we insist on trying to live our lives as more than we, we are intended to be. You know, that relentless mm. driving, that frustration. Um, and, and you write this. You say, without exaggeration, I have seen marriages fall apart, ministries destroyed, children neglected, bodies broken, mm. souls withered because of this attitude. And I've, and I've seen that, too. You know, that's, that's the negative vision. That's the consequence of trying to live as if we were mm. not finite beings. But let's finish by d- describe for us the opposite. I mean, what does yeah. it look like? What does it feel like when we truly embrace our identity as creatures and, and fri- finite and frail, but deeply loved? Yeah, I love that question. My short answer is love. And, and it, it is love. And the longer answer is the biblical language is the fear of the Lord. Um, without unpacking the whole thing, the fear of the Lord is not fundamentally, it shows up a couple times like this. It's not, it's not primarily about being afraid of God. Biblically, the fear of the Lord is a recognition of God's presence. That's really what it's about. And I think we really struggle to be present and kind of behind the book is me trying to encourage us to learn to live in a recognition of God's presence And I think as we start to cultivate an awareness and appreciation and a pace that recognizes God's presence, it actually liberates us to become more present with one another. To use Proverbs, living in the fear of the Lord is just in a recognition of God's presence and work and kindness and provision, which liberates you then to be truly present with and for others. I think that is a healthy, vibrant way forward. Um, that is very countercultural. It's amazing. Uh, you know, just as a simple example, next time, whoever's listening, next time you go out to dinner with another couple or you talk to someone in, in your office or whatever, notice how often they actually ask you questions. You're going to be stunned. They, people almost never ask questions anymore. We really struggle to be present with others, to value them. Um, so I think by, by learning to cultivate our awareness and dependence on God and just his, just a love for him also frees us to be truly present with other people in ways that can communicate love. And, um, I think that's a, a, a beautiful thing and it's very different than kind of the exhausted, stressed out lives that we're feeling we should live right now. What a wonderful place to end. And I, I agree completely. I mean, we are truly living in a moment where there is, an, it feels like an utter absence of that gift of attentiveness and presence, mm. right? Everyone yep. is so strained and divided and distracted. Mm. And so when you encounter it, when you encounter a person who really has that, that inner calm and as well as the, the inclination of their mind and their listening heart, they are fully present with you. Mm-hmm. It is a gift beyond words. Yeah. It is, it is an, indeed most precious. And, and part of what I love, thanks for having me on this podcast, because I love what you're doing here. It's justice in the inner life. These are not, this doesn't mean 
you don't care about justice issues. It doesn't care. It doesn't mean you don't care about real problems in the world. It's just trying to do it in a way that honors God in light of put it this way, taking God more seriously than just the problems without denying the problems. And we've, we've got to both seek justice and cultivate that inner life in the same, at the same time. I love where Kelly ended, at the intersection of this idea of accepting and embracing our limitedness as God's creatures with the idea of presence, of God's presence with us and our presence with others. And I really have come to believe that the most precious gift we have to give to anyone else is simply that gift of presence, that full attentiveness, giving our eyes and ears and heart to the person in front of us, just as Jesus always did with the people that were with him. That is what others most need, even before any of the programs and other good things we might be able to do with or for people. But the simple truth is, we will not be able to offer that kind of presence, that fullness of attention, if we are distracted and running hard, trying to be more than God intended us to be. If we imagine ourselves to be unlimited, to be God-like in our capacities, if we imagine that we must carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, we simply won't be able to give that kind of wholehearted presence to the people in front of us. So my prayer for myself and for you is that we may be able to embrace fully this vision for the limitedness, the smallness of us, each of us as God's creatures very finite, very bounded and limited, but dearly loved by our Father. And as we experience that and experience His love and presence in that smallness, we will be able to offer that same kind of love and tenderness and full presence to others as well. Amen. Hey, I'd also like to invite you to join me and the entire KFO community at the KFO 2022 Summit. That will be later this year in September in Atlanta. September 28 through 30. We'd love to have you there. With that, I'll sign off. God bless you. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Menefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit us online at kfo.org.